This is the Education Gadfly Show. Um, I am excited about my Mets being in the postseason. Okay, this is hockey, right? What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Robert Condicio of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now please join me in welcoming my co-host, E. Checker Finn of Ed Reform. Checker Finn. Wow, that would be me. <laughs> exactly. I, I need to explain that. Uh, you don't do the podcast very very often with us, but but I guess this tradition started some years ago where we introduce here. people as, as and make a pop culture reference. The Madonna of Ed Reform. Mm, that's the, not me. The Lady Gaga. So you're the Checker Finn of Ed Reform. Okay, you better need, than Madonna. You need no further introduction. Uh, and now it's time for the Education Reform Update. Mr. Finn, tomorrow I'm, I'm heading up to uh, Baltimore. I've been flattered to be asked uh, to, to uh, officiate a panel at Johns Hopkins on the 50th anniversary of the Coleman Report. You actually knew James Coleman. Yes, and also one of his principal reinterpreters and implementers, the, the late Pat Moynihan. They were pretty close colleagues, actually. I went to Coleman's funeral in Chicago, and there was Moynihan, and we walked down the street together. Might have been the last substantive conversation I had with Moynihan, actually. Is that right? At that point. Um, yeah. Um, Coleman, uh, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of 50th anniversary things going on this mm-hmm. year because it is, in fact, the 50th anniversary of the Coleman Report, which uh, is arguably the single most important bit of social science in American history, uh, certainly in the last 50 years, mm-hmm. because it fundamentally reversed uh, a... a century-old assumption that the way to get better schools was to put more resources into them. Right. So no more inputs, now we measure outputs. Now we measure outputs. And uh, I find that this is still not fully percolated <laughs> into the system. 50 years is not enough time? Not Too enough soon? time. It's Well, it, you understand that this is not sandstone that we're dealing with or limestone. This is granite. <laughs> and um, it doesn't uh, percolate quickly. I mean, I'm on a school finance commission in Maryland for my sins, and it's all about inputs. Right. It's all about inputs. And the staff is trying hard to get some attention to whether there's any connection between the inputs, the dollar inputs in Maryland K-12 education, and what kids are or are not learning. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like pulling teeth to get commissioners to think about outcomes. Right. Old habits die hard. So, so 50 years on, besides the input-output question, mm-hmm. what, what should his legacy be? Well, he was one of the great sociologists of the 20th century, president of the American Sociological Society, all the sorts of things like that. And he was what they call a mathematical sociologist. So, mm-hmm. uh, but so the Coleman Report, the 1966 Coleman Report, uh, uh, the book itself, the, the report itself, which was a federal, federally commissioned, federally published study, released on the Fourth of July weekend. This is a famous, famously on a Friday, right? Yes, uh, in order. Moynihan said to minimize attention to a finding that Lyndon Johnson found extremely uncomfortable because we are at that point, just one year after the elementary secondary education act, right? The underwriting premise of which was that more money would boost the learning of poor kids. Right. So a year later, a federal study uh, says that ain't so. Uh, so they released it. Um, they were anyway, the, the report itself, uh, it was about four inches thick. I mean, it, it, it dwarfs the Brooklyn phone, the old Brooklyn phone <laughs> book back when we had phone books. And because uh, it, it's full of numbers. It's basically full of numbers. But Coleman went on and did a lot of other things. Really interesting stuff. 
about uh, segregation, desegregation issues, about adolescent culture issues, mm-hmm. um, about social capital issues. It's actually much broader than this one study and much broader than the math that uh, was the fundamental basis of this one study. But now, uh, before we went on the air, I was accused by uh, by a couple of my colleagues here of, of being dour and cranky these days, and I'm, I'm going to plead no contest, but are we not right to be a little bit dour and cranky 50 years after the Coleman reported, frankly, how little progress we've made? Well, how little progress we've made and how slowly we are dealing with the implications of the Coleman report. That is to say, as I mentioned, uh, people still believe they can fiddle with inputs and do something about about outcomes just that way. Spend more, you'll get more, uh, which is as wrong 50 years later as it, as it was uh, 50 years ago. Um, if our mutual colleague Mike Petrilli were here, he's Mr. Glass Half Full and always accuses me of being Mr. Glass Half Empty. Right. Uh, and uh, he would point out that there have been various gains, actually, in American mm-hmm. K-12 education mostly in the younger grades, most visibly in math, improved graduation rates, things like that. So it's not no gains. Um, We also have a lot more choice uh, for a lot more kids in a lot more forms. I think that's an important reform that wasn't really a Coleman reform. Uh, And and we do now, at least in policy terms at the federal level and in a number of states, we do now focus on outcomes and value added and gains and things like that as a metric of whether we're making any progress. Uh, we shouldn't be content with that kind of process shift as a gain itself, but it is a gain of sorts. Okay. One last question, because my, my panel tomorrow will be on uh, communities, community and schools. Okay. And this is, I think, is a more uh, an arcane piece of, 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 of the Coleman Report. Uh, in New York City, where I live, Carmen Farina has famously backed community schools isn't this an idea that Coleman might have liked and supported? Coleman was deep into social capital, which comes from various kinds of community connections. That's one thing. The other thing, which goes back to the original Coleman study, uh, is the importance of peer group on student learning. Right. And so the school community and its composition and how it is sort of put together, not just demographically, but also kind of so socially. Uh, does have, uh, according to his analysis, a very considerable uh, impact on what kids do or don't learn. Right. Okay. Thank you, Checker. And now it's time for everybody's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Only today, it's not Amber. Uh, It's true. It's me. It's David. Yep. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Um, I am excited about my Mets being in the postseason. Okay, this is hockey, right? Oh, let's just move on. <laughs> not, why, why even bother? Uh, what do you got for us this week? Uh, well, I've got a, I've got a fun study. Uh, you and I are going to talk about uh, preschool, something we know almost nothing about. By uh, the way, my favorite part about the, the, uh, the podcast is fun study. Who else says fun study but us? Lots of people. There's Dara and, and Amber and people who, who work here. Right. Okay. Okay. So today's study is uh, titled, What is the Added Value of Preschool? Long-Term Impacts Uh-oh. and Interactions with a Health Intervention. Um, and it, it's uh, conducted by Maya Rossman Slater of UC Santa Barbara and Miriam Roost. Sorry, Miriam. Uh, she's <laughs> from Denmark. Okay. Um, so I think you'll like this one, Robert. Uh, the setting is uh, essentially early 20th century Denmark. Um, what? 
And so uh, they looked at health and preschool interventions. Oh, man, I'm going to get mangled the dates. Essentially from 1930 to 1957, give or take. Goodness. Um, and uh, so basically this was the period in Danish history when they were simultaneously scaling up preschool. Uh, and, and being occupied. Right. We'll get to that. And <laughs> okay. and and a universal nurse home visitation program. Huh. So um so they they found data. Is, is that what they called the invasion? <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. All right. Sorry. I'm just gonna yeah, all right. Too soon. <laughs> um moving on. Uh, <laughs> so basically, but uh, in a nutshell, Danish pre-K at this time looked a lot like pre-K that we know. Um basically the government started subsidizing pre uh, pre-K that, that met certain standards. Um, and then they simultaneously uh, sort of started rolling out this home visitation program um, where basically for non-education people, you know, nurses go to visit newborns and their mothers mm -hmm. um, about 10 times a year, talk to the mothers basically about infant care and, and all these really basic things. Um, and so they were able to merge these data and use um, kind of a, a difference in differences model to look at um, kind of the long-term impacts sure. of these programs and how they interact. Um, and so skipping to the bottom line, all right? Uh, so the results are that there's a, a modest increase basically in um, years of schooling completed um, and, and sort of your your likelihood of finishing compulsory education mm -hmm. if, you, if you go through preschool. Um, and then uh, men also experienced a boost in income um, and, and women uh, appear to have experienced a boost in life expectancy. Okay, uh, the, the pre-K works. So, right. So, well, so I should have said that, that it was targeted very much at core Danish kids. Ah, so it was a targeted program. Lead. Yeah. So, so I, I would argue pre-K does work for poor kids. Um, and this, this supports that. Um, what, what's interesting about the study or what drew my eye to it was um, essentially the, the cohorts that had uh, the home visitation program at birth, um, the positive impact of access to preschool was reduced by about 85%. You Wait, know? say that again. So, so if you were if you were a, a kid who had the home visitation mm -hmm. program, and then you had preschool, right? You experienced a much smaller, much much smaller benefit than if you had not been in the home visitation program. In other words, your your uh, being part of the home visitation program wiped out a huge part of the benefit. It wiped it out or it, it, it made it redundant? It made it redundant. That's okay. a better way of putting it, essentially. And, and so this is what drew my eye to it because I think this is something we don't talk about enough um, because the earlier you go in education, I, I feel like the, um, uh, the, the, the more sort of overlap there is between sure. childcare and, sure. and, um, and education as we think of it. Um, and so as, as the authors put it, you know, in a world with limited public resources, um, maybe it is efficient to design programs that specifically target populations without prior exposure to other interventions. Right. Um, for instance, while many oversubscribed programs for low-income children allocate slots at random or on a first-come, first-served basis, our evidence suggests that an allocation mechanism that considers the lack of participation in earlier programs uh, could potentially lead to greater program benefits. Right. And that makes all the sense in the world. And, and we've talked, uh, maybe not, uh, you, I'm not sure if you were part of these conversations on the podcast, but Lord knows we've talked about this a lot over the years. Why are we talking about universal pre-K for kids like mine? That's redundant. You know, for the kids that I teach, boy, do they ever need it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a researcher. I'm cautious to make any definitive statements sure, on any I, of these and things. I, and thank you for that. I should be. A no, bit no, no, no. That's okay. That's every, everyone has a role to play, right, Robert? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, 
I mean, the, the two big questions that I want to that I want to go out and find the answers to uh, after this are basically, you know, made me think, of course, of Head Start and early Head Start. Right. Um, and and so I just want to know, uh, you know, first of all, like, what, what's what is the overlap between these? You mm-hmm. know, I mean, how many Head Start early That's Head Start a great kids? Question. I simply don't know the answer to that. Right. I couldn't how, even hazard a guess. Right. How many early Head Start kids go on to participate in Head Start? And has anybody ever looked at whether the benefits sort of are reduced if you do one? And then the other, as opposed to doing one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm just wondering. You'll have um, that for us by next week. I will. Uh, <laughs> and then the other thing that just made me wonder, um, and, and this is a, probably an answerable question, is just kind of like the relative costs of like home visitation versus, you know, some, some of these more intensive programs. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my impression is that like home visitation is cheaper, right? So to the extent that they are substitutes, um, it just makes me wonder if we sort of pay enough attention to it, basically. Um, so, you know, you, uh, Visiting somebody ten times, you know, in the course of a year versus providing childcare for right. a long time, um, and and I don't know. I've I've always felt like home visitation just doesn't get enough attention, given how much we know about parents and that right. they matter. Um, and and I I don't know if it's just our reluctance to kind of go to the source, um, because we feel like it, the government shouldn't be telling parents how to parent, but at some point there's got to be a line, right? Where where you know certain things are good for babies, right? And yeah, look, I, you know, um, my my expertise is elementary education, but yeah. I'd be the first to say if you if you fix it at the source, then then you solve a lot of problems further downstream. My, my, but my answer always to you're not tell is not, is not tell people how to parent that right. uh, that's obviously uh, a very difficult thing to do. But there's no harm whatsoever, right, in saying, look, this these are what the habits of successful parents look like. This is right. how parents get their kids ready for school. Right. You're not saying you must do this. Right. You're sure. sharing information. Right. In, in the sense of the way you would with a public health campaign. Right. So, I, you know, I probably left me with more questions than answers. There's obviously a lot of uh, caveats here. I, I forgot to read my favorite line from the study, which goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Uh, they, the authors say specifically that they do not believe that World War II is a confounding factor what? in their analysis. Come on. Uh, I, I don't think we have time to explain why they believe that, but uh, I don't know. I guess... Take take any any study that has that sentence in it with at least a small grain of salt. At one, least one or two. So I thought it was interesting. It is. Thank you very much. And that is all the time we have for this week's Gadfly Show. Till next week, I'm Robert Pondicio for the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Something off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.